0: Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm your co host, Haley Wooden, and sitting in with me this week is my BIV colleague, Albert Van Sanford. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Haley.
0: This BIV podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Later on in this podcast, you're going to hear an interview I did with Will Gornall. He's an associate professor of finance at the University of British Columbia. He did a study along with a colleague at Stanford University that looked at the valuation of unicorns. These are private startups rumored to be valued at a billion dollars or more. The findings that about half of all these unicorn startups are actually overvalued and by a significant margin. So later on, you'll hear from Gornall about what the results of their study were, and you'll also hear him argue why we need to reevaluate. How We Value Privately Held Companies. That's to come, but first we're going to have a look at some of the latest news in business, one of which a Canadian story and a disappointing one for anyone who had big travel plans or has big travel plans for later this year and wants to keep an eye on keeping their costs low. WestJet has postponed the launch of its low-cost carrier. What do you think, Albert? Albert sad news for anyone wanting to travel i know you have family and you're originally from or spent time back east so wouldn't it be nice to have a really cheap ryanair like carrier that could get us cheap flights back and forth around canada
1: yeah it it does seem like it's always expensive going back east and because so much of our population is uh, either in ontario or out on this coast it seems like you almost have to fly on a on a no frills type Uh, air service in order to get all the way across the country without spending loads and loads of money.
0: Especially when you're thinking of, say, families trying to plan a trip, you could spend a lot of money getting the whole family to the other side of the country, or you could put that toward a trip and go to Mexico or somewhere. Sometimes the flights, especially around the holidays, can be quite ridiculous.
1: What what I'm wondering, too, is what how this uh, low-cost airlines is going to affect some of the smaller airports uh, not located in Canada's big cities. I know a lot of people to travel to Calgary, let's say from Toronto, instead of flying out of Pearson Airport, they'll come down to the Hamilton uh, Airport, which is right by my neck of the woods, and fly over to Calgary for extremely cheap. I remember they were offering flights for under $100. Nice. So that's what I'm wondering. Will these other carriers that are sort of dependent on people driving to these airports to use their carriers, to have cheap flights, will they be forced out of business? Will they be forced to lower their price? How, how will they react?
0: That's a good point. And actually WestJet sort of came out and said more recently than when they delayed this, that this new low cost carrier might not actually be based in Calgary where WestJet is headed and that they might actually look to not the prime airports or, first tier airports in Canada, but second or third tier airports to really launch this, which would make sense. You have, for example, New Leaf Travel that services some smaller airports like Kelowna, for example, and offering really cheap or discounted flights uh, to different destinations that maybe you wouldn't go to. Abbotsford would maybe be another one as opposed to just servicing YVR or the big airports. So we'll see what happens with WestJet. They have uh, some reasonable reasons for their delay, including they switched over to a new booking system they want to work, make sure it's fully implemented. They also don't want to take planes out of commission during the busy holiday season. So with this delay, they'll have the spring period, which is a bit slower to do that. They also don't have their certifications in place just yet. They expect those in the first quarter of 2018. Canada Jetlines is another airline that has postponed launching an ultra low cost carrier. Also expected to launch around the same time WestJet does, so they could be facing additional competition from new providers. Who knows?
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. Where, where if they don't open up in Calgary, where do you think they will open up? I know there's some interest in trying to get an airlines operating out of Vancouver that we currently don't have. What what do you think the likelihood of that is?
0: I have no idea. That's a good point. I know Canada Jetlines has tried to launch from here. Uh, new Leaf Travel was acquired by Kelowna based. I think it's Flair Airlines. So there is a track record of companies trying to base it off the West Coast. Uh, interestingly, though, I mean, it makes sense. We're known as, as a destination for flights to Asia. Those keep getting added through uh, more established airlines, uh, through YVR2, and neither of these low-cost discounted airlines are trying to do that. They're trying to service the rest of Canada. So I don't know where they'd be placed. WestJet has mentioned, though, that you know, their their numbers were impacted by the recession experienced in Alberta, and they're only just recovering from that. So I wonder, you know, if you're going to launch a low cost carrier, that's already a challenging feat considering what fuel prices are doing, just the input costs to running an airline. Maybe they want to go somewhere that isn't as resource heavy and maybe has a more stable economic track record. I don't know what, what might factor into this decision.
1: Well, the Vancouver airport's definitely expanding. I know WestJet itself announced recently that it was going to start flights from Vancouver to Mexico mm-hmm. nonstop. So we we are seeing a bit of expansion down at YVR. Hopefully it continues. Whether that means new airlines coming and setting up shop in Vancouver, uh, I think is uh, we have to wait and see.
0: I agree. So that's a, a postponed. It's not a failure to launch. It's just a delayed launch Failure plan. to
1: launch. We should have opened the segment with that. That's very, that's very clever.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you.
1: I wish we had a Chiron. We could put that right on the bottom. Too bad we're on uh, audio only.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. No video yet. Well, let's move to a company that is relaunching and that's the American Apparel brand. It was purchased by Gildan Activewear, a Canadian-based manufacturer earlier this year in bankruptcy proceedings. They got it for around $88 million or so. American Apparel, of course, a brand that really known for its made-in-USA policy. It's a retailer with a lot of sort of generic-looking clothing, jeans, t-shirts, accessories, all made in the U.S., struggled financially in part because of that gildan did not acquire its real estate holdings but did acquire the brand and they have now officially relaunched the e-commerce site so you can go online you can go to americanapparel.com and at the bottom you'll see owned by gildan but for all intents and purposes very similar offerings to what you would have seen from american apparel before they went bankrupt interestingly gildan is very well known for its series of facilities In countries that are not the US, including Honduras, Guatemala, Central America, countries that do not have the best track record when it comes to protecting worker rights, to put it very, very mildly. So, if you do go to this newly relaunched American Apparel site, you will see a selection of Made in USA products. You will also now see a, a globally sourced series of products, meaning that they are now being produced in different factories outside of the US.
1: Glo- globally sourced is a very nice way of putting it, I think. Well, yeah. How how do you think the outsourcing is going to affect their brand? You know, American Apparel was sort of seen as this store standing in the face of fast fashion, saying, "No, we're not mm-hmm. going to make our goods super cheap, and we're not going to push them out every other week. Instead, we're going to have a made right here. We're going to have it lasting clothes." And it didn't from from the evidence it doesn't seem like that plan worked out for them.
0: No, it, it didn't work and you know what I I did a little bit of research just to see what the reaction has been like and of course a lot of people are very excited that they're getting their American apparel brand back and I haven't seen too too much calling out, you know, this uh, the fact that it is not actually going to be made in USA. Gildan I think is marketing the fact that they will maintain some clothes that are made in the US and they're doing that through third parties. But the fact remains that if Gildan wants to really overhaul this company and make it profitable, they have to make some changes. And it's very clear that they're doing this by putting their manufacturing offshore. That's one way. They've also talked about how they will do some deals by selling directly to wholesalers, blank clothes that they can then customize as they wish. So it seems like those are really the two major changes, in addition to being online and not having bricks and mortar stores. I don't know. They they also have on their site sweatshop free stories where uh, Gildan members of their marketing team and uh, former members of American Apparel, I guess, or part of that brand still went down and produced videos about people who work in Gildan's factories there. I have to say, I have also been to Honduras and tried to get into one of these factories and was not allowed, but have spoken oh. to many people who have worked in them. And I can tell you that many of those individuals, one, felt uh, required to work at a factory owned by Gildan because it happens to be one of the better paying jobs in the country, which says a lot about the country's economy, and they suffer from chronic pain. They work very, very, very long hours. They feel like they can't leave the job because it is one of their best options and they are not paid a lot of money at all. So, you know, it's one of those situations where I am not going to go so far as to say that Gilden's doing anything illegal, but in a lot of cases, some of these countries are sought out because their laws are quite lax.
1: I always find it interesting that the company is willing to put up videos of their factories uh, through their through their own videographer and through their own production. But if the second a journalist wants to come in, they're they're not so open to the idea which you think if their if their practices were so good that they wanted to brag about them that they wouldn't mind who is doing the filming their own photographer or videographer or you
0: you would think <laughs> i should say when i went this was in 2015 so long before this acquisition i suppose it is possible that they have a different facility that's manufacturing american apparel branded clothing i want to put that out there just so i cover myself. But frankly, when I did try and visit other Gildan-owned factories, uh, the people I spoke to who used to work at them had less than nice things to say about it.
1: Are are you excited for American Apparel, the website to come back, the store to have a bigger role?
0: You know, I was never really a fan. I have to say I'm not that into fashion. You know, I like having clothes that look nice, but I'm not a major shopper and I'm certainly not a major online shopper, particularly when it comes to clothes. I like to try them on. Uh, And I know we're getting to the point where Amazon, you can try things on, ship it right back the same day and that's fine. But for me, it's still not as convenient as just Spending a couple hours at a few stores and trying things on. What about you?
1: Well, I'm quite the fashionista, so oh, yeah. I'm very excited about <laughs> uh American apparel. Look, I, I, I have a, I have the wardrobe that's meant for a radio. Let's put it that way. So it's a good thing. <laughs> wardrobe
0: a, meant for radio.
1: <laughs> so it's a good thing that uh nobody can see what I'm wearing right now. Cause...
0: Okay. Well I you know, just to clarify, Albert is dressed appropriately. But <laughs> <laughs> you
1: are wearing. I hope so. But you
0: are wearing, you know, similar clothing to what you might find on American apparel. Just a long sleeve shirt, a solid color jeans. That's the American apparel brand. Very North American style, like USA clothing. Exactly I don't know what, what I'm do- still
1: doing here. I should go shopping then. I need, I need some more <laughs> red sweaters and blue jeans.
0: There you go. You can buy an $18 white t-shirt.
1: It's like a cartoon when I open my closet. It's just the same clothes, like 20 pairs of them.
0: That explains a lot. Well, I'm <laughs> glad to know it's not just the same outfit. Yeah, yes. yes, you have yes. 20, 20 pairs. All right. So that's what's going on with uh, American Apparel. Gildan, by the way, says it hopes it's going to be its most successful acquisition to date. So I, I'm sure we can expect more news to come up.
1: It ended up purchasing the company for about 33% more than its original bid. So, not that that says a lot in itself, but just uh, an interesting uh, mm-hmm. piece of information to take note of.
0: For sure. So uh, American Apparel, of course, was a private company for publicly traded companies listed on different stock exchanges. Well, rankings have come out about which ones in the G20 are most successful and which ones might be lagging behind the pack. So, Albert, tell us uh, where Canada's Toronto Stock Exchange may fall on this list.
1: So it's it's not great news for Canadian investors investing in the uh Toronto Stock Exchange. If you look at uh the top G uh, the G20 uh stock exchanges, we finished second last uh in front of only Russia. Wow. Which, yeah, which uh is a li- it is concerning. The TSX hit a peak in uh June on June 30th, 2014. And since then, the three years since then, it's been about a 3% growth. Uh, This is the first year that it's seen growth uh, from uh, the first year after, from 2014 to 2015, it dropped 1.3%. And then the following year, it dropped 0.8%. So maybe investors might be looking towards uh, stocks in the States or honestly, any other G20 country except Russia.
0: Interesting. I wonder to what extent uh, the shock in oil prices maybe played into this the uh, resource prices across the board. Of course, the TSX is very resource heavy. So any changes, challenges, issues going on there could certainly impact the overall stock exchange.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we look at when we look at other stock exchanges, let's just look at the uh, S and P five hundred compared to the one point three drop uh, in to, from two thousand fourteen to two thousand fifteen. The S and P saw a seven point two percent gain. Followed uh, the next year was a five point six percent gain, and three years later, it is now a nine point five percent gain. So three times the return that the uh, T S X is seeing. It's uh, I also wonder how much of it is, is marketing is sort of, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People aren't uh, buying stocks in the TSX, so they're not increasing their volume, increasing their prices. I wonder sort of how much of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy and how many people are just international investors specifically are more lured to the to the New York Stock Exchange than, than the Toronto one.
0: Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about marketing, I mean, it's been nothing but up, up, up for the American exchanges. Uh, for quite some time, but especially even after Trump became president, which was a surprise to and, many people.
1: And it doubled under the uh, the previous president, President Obama. It, it's the it's a good time to be investing in the New York Stock Exchange. Maybe not such a great time to be investing in the TSX, How how they're handling it over there in Toronto, what they plan to do about it. Doesn't seem to be too much reporting on it. I'm not sure. I, I don't know how I'd handle it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting. I know there's been a lot of talk about the Dow recently breaking the 22,000 point threshold. S&P 500 continues to break records. And actually 2017, it's the first time since 59 that there has been a consecutive 10 day gain streak.
1: Oh really? I didn't. I didn't see that little factoid.
0: Yeah, So the first time in sixty years, close to sixty years. So, mind you, not very big gains, but the fact that they're consecutive, so you can take that to mean what whatever you want it to mean, I suppose. But it, it certainly has been a a banner time for exchanges in the states. We'll see how long that continues. You can ask one person; they see it going up, up, up for quite some time. You see other people saying, you know, what it might be a bit of a bubble questions too around the extent to which tech companies actually play a factor in some of these.
1: Not that I'd I'd invest any money off of my advice necessarily, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> when disclaimer, a, uh,
1: discla- yeah, exactly. Well when a stock uh when when the stock market tends to go up nonstop, it it eventually leads to some sort of market recreation recorrection and a and a fall eventually. So
0: Sure. Nothing goes up forever. That's the uh the way the adage goes, and when it does, it sometimes whatever, whatever recorrects very quickly. Come down, yeah. There you go. You see that in real estate, too. Who knows? Uh, for investors' sake, I, I hope it doesn't crash too hard. Maybe we'll see it go up for quite some time. Who knows? But speaking of publicly traded companies, of course, Apple, the iPhone maker, released its second quarter numbers last week. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of fun facts. This tends to be a bit of a slower quarter for Apple only because in the upcoming quarter, the current quarter we're in now, they release their latest iPhone. So sales tend to slow down. And this year it's the 10-year anniversary. So you would think a lot of people would maybe be holding out for this new, marvelous, exciting iPhone that they're going to launch to commemorate its 10-year birthday. But actually iPhone sales did way better than expected. Uh, Wall Street largely expecting sort of a lame duck quarter. Revenue as well as earnings per share beat estimates. 41 million iPhones sold to bring the total number of iPhones sold to date above 2.1 billion iPhones. That is a lot of phones. All those people clearly don't have those phones anymore, so who knows where they are.
1: I, I have them all now, actually. I, I collect people's old used phones.
0: You know, it would be sort of neat not to collect other people's per se, but to even keep sort of all your old phones as you can compare them over the years. Because I remember my first phone, I remember my mom getting her first cell phone, and it was just, it looked like a wireless landline phone. <laughs> it didn't move. It was big. It was like a brick. And then I got my first phone. It wasn't a smartphone. It's just a flip phone. And that was the coolest thing ever. And then...
1: Did it have a camera?
0: No, it did not have a camera. My next one, I got the Motorola Razor. Yeah. Had a camera. Very cool. And then eventually went into the iPhones and older
1: models through to new ones. I think everybody remembers the uh, Motorola Razor.
0: They're bringing it back, apparently. Which, uh, (laughs) I don't know, for nostalgia's sake. It's the same thing we're seeing people bring back. Again, Nintendo 64 or Super Mario games, it's at that point where certain generations who grew up on them have money to spend on things that bring nostalgia and good memories.
1: And the present is a lot to deal with right now.
0: (laughs) There you go. Yeah, I I guess so. Can uh, flash back to a simpler time, right? Record sales, too, through the roof. That's uh, an even simpler time. We're going back a couple generations there. Some other interesting factoids that I want to mention about Apple, uh, what's helping them grow. They've experienced more than 25% growth in certain markets, including Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. So that's key. Growth in the Apple App Store is driving the company's services division to record high revenue. The services division itself is about the size of a Fortune 100 company on its own. So you have a company within a company that includes the App Store, as I said. And I know gaming, different apps, is increasingly big business for Apple. And the final point I want to bring attention to is that the company is stockpiling cash. They now have in excess of $260 billion cash. And to put that in some context, that means that Apple now has more cash the total market caps of Starbucks, PayPal, and Kraft Heinz combined.
1: My my favorite Apple cash stat was one that came out, I think probably late 2014, early 2015, was that Apple had more reserve cash than the US government. Wow, which was amazing. And it, and it wasn't a little bit more reserve cash. It was it was a significant amount more. So, I mean, what what does that mean when companies have more cash than the 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 biggest economy in the world,
0: it means they have a lot of power.
1: <laughs> you don't you don't say
0: you don't say. Well, and I know too. It's interesting to see a company like Apple doing this. You have other major players who are not saving so much. And they're spending, 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 and acquiring. I think of Amazon, for example. So there's two uh, companies that are arguably very successful. Of course, Amazon not, not as big as Apple, but you know, you have one company that's saving cash and who knows what they're saving it for, a rainy day, but, you know, it certainly to is... To buy
1: the U.S. government. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that, that is
1: a very interesting contrast you brought up, though. A- Amazon versus Apple, how one sort of, I guess, hoarding their cash while the other seemingly can't stop acquiring things.
0: Well, I don't even think it's a matter of not being able to stop. I think it's a matter of they're expected to not be saving money to actually dip into the red if and when it's necessary to push that brand forward and sort of push the boundaries of, uh, you know, whatever it may be, shopping, groceries, transportation, take your pick. So I I think Amazon has a very different mandate than Apple, even from those who have invested in it and in terms of their expectations.
1: And I mean, saving, uh, saving your cash, uh, helps, helps, uh, your retained earnings and helps your your stock price. But it also means a a bigger tax bill. You know, the investments Amazon's making is tax deductible. It's lowering its tax bill. So you got to think, why isn't Apple spending that money, investing it where it sees that it can get the best return and and thus saving a little bit uh, on the back end when paying taxes?
0: You know, I have to say, I think a company like Apple they already pay pretty low <laughs> taxes. There are a couple court cases you can <laughs> you can reference that's about
1: a their point. Uh, that's that's a fair point. Their
0: offices in Ireland, but no, that that is a fair point. There's always the the option you're going to spend or you're going to save. What are you saving for? Whether you just save it just because, of course, it is something that analysts and investors look to. How much cash is on hand because you know it allows the company to be a little bit more liquid and to jump on any opportunities that they see fit. It's interesting, I, uh, of course, on the radio show here at BIV and on our podcast, we talk about Amazon and the Amazon effect all the time. We'll see if they continue to spend, spend, spend. But I have to say, Apple's cash stockpile is pretty impressive.
1: Maybe we'll see a revival of the Apple car program.
0: Hey, if there were ever a time, now sir, the time, as long as it's autonomous, right?
1: An Apple spaceship, perhaps. They got the money for it. There
0: you go. We will see. And if that happens, we'll be sure to bring it up on this podcast. Stay with us. After this short break, we're going to feature an interview that aired on BIV's radio show on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We're dissecting a study that says about half of all unicorn startups are actually overvalued. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. Now, if you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, and if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604 714 3600. That's 604-714-3600. Or you can check them out on their website, manningelliot.ca. Now we're going to feature an interview with Will Gornall. He is an associate professor of finance at the University of British Columbia's Sodder School of Business. He and a colleague at Stanford University conducted a study looking at the valuations of unicorns. These are private companies that are worth or rumored to be worth a billion dollars or more. Their research found about half of them not actually about a billion dollars, so they're not actually unicorns. Have a listen to Will Gornall on BIV's Roundhouse Radio show. Welcome back to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm your host, Haley Wooden. Now, it's no secret media does like to talk about unicorns. These are private companies worth a billion dollars or more. The tech community also likes to talk about these. It sounds good for investment and it looks great in advance of an initial public offering. But research out of the University of British Columbia and Stanford University, however, has found that in about half of cases, unicorn startups are actually overvalued. And on average, they're overvalued by 49% above their fair market value. Here to break down the research is report author Will Gornell. He's an assistant professor of finance at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. Thanks for joining the show.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me in, Haley. Very happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. And I want to start out by asking why look at this in the first place?
2: Well, I think these companies have become a more and more important part of the economy. You have companies like Airbnb or Uber, not that we have that in Vancouver, taking up market capitalizations or valuations of $30 billion, $70 billion or more. And these companies have attracted growing attention from mutual funds and from institutional investors. So it only makes sense to look at, take a deeper look at how these companies are actually valued. And when we did that, we weren't happy with some of the things we saw. We found that the valuations were based off of the price of the most recently issued security, when that security might be better and different from the other securities the company issued. And that practice gives a misleading picture of what these companies are actually worth.
0: Who's leading or perpetuating this misleading picture? Because I have to think involved in these companies are... A significant number of investors and people who have expertise and, in theory, you would think be able to properly value these companies. So where's the disconnect here?
2: Definitely. So there are, of course, financial experts involved in these companies from veteran CEOs and professional investors making these valuation decisions. The important thing to keep in mind is that many people in the industry know these prices are not the true prices and not the true value of the companies. They just think of them as a reference. But then the media sees these prices, picks them up, and presents them as the true value of the company, the true price. And employees see these prices and pick them up as the true price. And no one's done much to stop that. So one of the contributions here is to try to let people know that these prices, these valuations are not the true value of the company, they're more of a notional reference number.
0: And what are some of the risks of you know, taking a notional reference number and actually picking it up and holding it up as a proper valuation of a company very misleadingly?
2: Well, d- definitely. I mean, I think one of the risks is that you're not being fair to your employees, fundamentally. I've talked to many startup employees, especially in Silicon Valley, but in Vancouver as well, who think they have a significant personal wealth generated by their stock options or by their shares and nine times out of ten they're using these reference prices as the true value of these securities and one of the, one of the things I want from this research is that those employees will realize that hey hold on your shares are not worth ten dollars per share just because the company sold different shares to a venture capitalist for ten dollars per share and give those people a bit more caution when interpreting these values.
0: What might actually, aside from individuals maybe learning a little bit more about this and having a better understanding themselves, but what might actually change when it comes to how these companies are valued and how they're reported to be valued in media, save any sort of regulation? I mean, these are private companies and not public ones.
2: Definitely. I. For public companies, we see very strong regulation. In the U.S., there's something called Reg FD, which forces equal disclosure across stakeholders. I'd like to see better disclosure of the valuations of these companies, perhaps not to the media, but certainly to limited partners who are investing in these companies, to other owners of the companies, and especially to employees. Right now, employees have very limited rights to even know what's going on in companies that the shares of which might make up much of their net worth and much of their wealth. I'd like to see better disclosure in this market so that owners of these companies, especially individuals, have a better idea of exactly what they own.
0: Interesting. I know there have, especially when it comes to tech companies, been some fairly spectacular IPOs, which then subsequently at some point seemed to fall. We finally saw it with Snapchat, for example. It's happened to Facebook. It happened to Twitter. Do you think this is the market finally settling on an actual fair market value for a company that a lot of people had very, very high expectations about?
2: So That's a great question. I don't have a crystal ball. It's incredibly hard to predict what will happen. I think that, of course, some companies are significantly overvalued and will have very poor performance. But many companies, even companies that I've said are overvalued, will have outstanding performance and blow air expectations. You only need a couple of Amazons or Googles or Apples to make many failed investments in other startups worthwhile. And this is really a market with some extreme winners that blow everyone's expectations away and a lot of other companies that fail quietly.
0: I'm speaking with Will Gornall. He's an assistant professor of finance at the Sauder School of Business at the University of British Columbia. He also worked on a new report that looks at how unicorn star- startups are often overvalued. Now, part of this is you look at and propose a new model for properly evaluating these companies. You touched on maybe bringing about regulations, but what else would you like to see?
2: Sorry, can you repeat that?
0: What else would you like to see by way of a a more accurate model to value these companies in addition to regulations? Is there anything else that may be able to bring more clarity to these companies and individuals who are going about valuing them?
2: Definitely. So I would like to have, I would like regulation. I would like companies to be required to disclose these values to their stakeholders, whether that be employees, whether that be pension funds investing retirees' money into these companies, I think, or whether it be mutual funds, which are increasingly taking direct claims in these companies. I think many of those managers. Really lack the to- from what I've seen, these managers lack the tools to accurately value these companies, and I'd like to see reform there to allow them to come up with a better picture of what the companies are worth, including perhaps just allowing those people to get information on the financing rounds that they're basing their values off of.
0: And I have to say, too, of course, we might have different numbers, but if you're talking about a unicorn, whether it's valued as one truly or not, there's so much access to money without having to actually IPO now, which wasn't necessarily the case for any number of companies that have been able to raise millions, if not billions of dollars. Is this changing the greater investor game and how companies raise funds and could it impact, you know, the number of companies we actually see go public?
2: That's a great question and that's something I'm also interested in. We've seen companies stay private longer and longer and raise more and more money through mutual funds, through the Saudi sovereign wealth fund pouring $3 billion into Uber and through other non-public fundraising mechanisms. Whether that's good or bad remains to be seen, but it's certainly the case that individual investors who used to be able to get access to these companies are now being essentially shut out of that market and companies that used to be facing some of the pressures of disclosure from the public market are now avoiding that disclosure.
0: Yeah, Again, arguably, I'm not
2: sure that's good or bad, but it's a, a definite change. We, we aren't sure what's driving it and how it will all shake out.
0: I have to get your thoughts on Decacorns, these companies that are private and worth in excess of $10 billion. Do you think, based on your research, there's a chance that these two might be overvalued?
2: Definitely. I, I'm certain that several are overvalued. On the other hand, it's very likely that several of them are massively undervalued. Again, we just don't know. Uber could turn out to be a massive failure because they don't have enough defensibility of their market. On the other hand, they could be bought by Apple for $200 billion next week. We really don't know, and that's part of what makes this area so exciting.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And I I have to think, too, from the perspective of these tech companies, they're certainly incentivized to, one, not necessarily give more clarity around their true numbers if they need to, and and two, if they can get access to money without having to be held to high regulatory standards, without having to be as accountable as, say, a, a publicly listed company is, you have to think there's some appeal there.
2: I think so. And I think there's a strategic reason that many of these companies avoid going public. You see, for example, Uber or Airbnb. If they're negotiating with the city of Vancouver, do they want the city of Vancouver to know exactly how much cash they have on hand and exactly how much profit they make on each rental unit or each car share? It's likely that this lack of clarity gives them a competitive advantage in their market. And that's good for their shareholders, but perhaps bad for the public and perhaps bad for the city of Vancouver in this case.
0: That's a very good point. Will, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much for joining me.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: That's Will Gornall. He is the Assistant Professor of Finance at the Sodder School of Business at the University of British Columbia. He also co-authored a report that we were talking about all about the overvaluation of about half of unicorn startups. Thank you for listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. We'll be back tomorrow. That was Will Gornall. He is an associate professor of finance at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Fascinating talk. And I I like how he sort of leaves off and touches on there are a lot of implications, both known and unknown. We're in a, a bit of an unprecedented period of time where companies Don't necessarily have to go to the stock exchanges, which we were talking about earlier in the show. They can get lots and lots of money, more money really than anyone could ever need, just from privately uh, private companies, whether they're VCs or other individuals or institutions. Interesting to see where that leaves us, or if any regulations might come online.
1: Yeah, and we sort of—I feel like we sort of see a similar story come up every decade or so, where companies, the new hot companies on, on the scene uh, are overvalued. I'm thinking specifically of the dot-com bubble mm. in the early 2000s, where the hot new websites were the, all the rage. Everyone was pouring all their money, and they turned out just to not quite be as worth what people thought they were, and sort of similar situation here, it seems.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, there's obviously the fact that if you're miscalculating or you know, if companies are letting other people miscalculate the value of shares, shares different types of shares, for one, classified differently, and then what subsequently they're worth. I mean, I think sometimes, too, these overinflated numbers are representative of maybe people's hopes for a certain company that can't actually be tied to revenue or cash flow. Again, we're talking about Amazon. They're not making a lot of profit, but they're also not expected to. They're expected to acquire. So it's this whole almost paradigm shift of how we value companies and what companies are, valuable. are they the ones that have tons of cash and are very prudent or are they the ones that are pushing boundaries and spending money?
1: And that's a question that keeps coming up with a lot of these uh, tech IPOs. I'm thinking specifically of Snapchat or, or of Facebook a few years ago where where are their values coming from to justify these giant IPO sizes
0: well don't even get me started on Snapchat we've again you can search com and you you won't hear me rant exactly but you'll hear us talk about this snap in its IPO prospectus said it does is unclear unsure whether it will ever be profitable and yet you have tons of people buying into that IPO which again it's come down and finally sort of hit a wall i guess and it's maybe starting to adjust a little bit but again, people still buying it. It's not at zero. People still are valuing a company and seeing value in a company that came out and said it doesn't think it, it, there's a chance it might never be profitable.
1: It's, and I think it's because people definitely see the value. When, when there's tons and tons, I, I don't want to throw out a number here, but when what I can only assume is millions of people going to your app sure. uh, using it, that's a giant audience that it has an extremely large amount of value turning it into profit is another story though.
0: And you know, it, that's an excellent point. It may be the case that a company that then acquires a company like Snap has the ability to turn what Snap does into something profitable.
1: Some sort of value-added proposition to their to their general product offering.
0: Exactly. We'll wait and see though, cuz I feel like that might be a little bit of a little bit of a ways off. <laughs> You will be sure to hear me talk about that one. Because how, I, much,
1: how much cash will Apple have by then? That's the real question.
0: <laughs> Enough to buy several snaps. Spaceships. Sure, and spaceship. Snap
1: spaceships. Wow. The wow. future is going to be so great. <laughs> there you
0: go. Joining me on BIV's podcast, Albert Van Santford. Thanks for sitting in this week.
1: Thank you so much
0: and I'm Haley Wooden. And thank you very much for tuning into our show. If you want past podcast episodes, if you want to listen to more of our radio shows, you heard a clip from one earlier in the show, you can head on over to BIV.com, where we have lots and lots of different business news. You can also find our podcasts at iTunes, and feel free to give us a rating if you can. It really helps other people find our show, so we do appreciate it. For now, again, I'm Haley Wooden. You can connect with me on Twitter, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-W-O-O-D-I-N. We'll catch you next week. Thanks again.